We invite you to our familiar text in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, the series Solomon and the Queen. 1 Kings 10, reading at verse 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almond trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And in the last few messages, obviously we've been talking about Solomon as a type of Christ, or Solomon in similitude of Christ. Similitude again being defined as a comparative resemblance. Jesus' own words again gives us the ability to do that and the authority to do that. His words in Matthew twelve forty two, a greater than Solomon is here. So by contemplating what we do know about Solomon, we educate ourselves on what we do not know about Christ. Everything that was in and is said about Solomon is magnified to an infinite degree in Christ. We left off on the point last week of Solomon building the Lord's house. He built a temple, a permanent temple. The Bible says it took him seven years to build it. He built it out of material that his father David had assembled. Not only David, but David and the people that were under him while David was king. And it was decreed and appointed, revealed unto David who had a desire to build it, that he should not build it, but that his seed after him, Solomon, would build it. So God not only decreed that, but he used providence, individuals such as David, the people, and even as we read here also of Hiram, 
others outside of Israel for the materials, the resources, and the persons to be able to construct the temple. And Solomon built it according to the architectural design that God had actually given to David his father. So that was our point last week. And truly, if you read about it, and if you research it even, I'm sure you can come up with some replicas and pictures that men have drew up. There's not any pictures, of course, of the temple, but based on what is said about it, you can get an image, kind of like the tabernacle, the portrait tabernacle, of what it would have looked like by the things that are said about it. It was an amazing thing. It's an amazing to read about it. Not the height, the breadth, and all of this, but everything about it. The pillars, the things that were in it, the cherubims, uh, everything. Just an absolutely magnificent human structure in that regard. Well, when we come to Christ, we realize that Christ was a carpenter's son, but he built no such house of a material or physical nature that Solomon did. But he did build what we call a house. And the house that the Lord built is none other than the Lord's church, which did not exist until Christ came and established it. And so while we may, if we could, and only by reading what Scripture says, stand in awe of the temple that Solomon built, which would be destroyed, burnt, and tore down, and is no more, nor replicated since then. Others have been built, but none like that one. We stand even in more awe of the structure that we call the Lord's church. Because it is an edifice that divinely supersedes that place of worship that was in Solomon's time. In Solomon's day, that was the central point of worship for God's people. Today, and since Christ established his church upon the earth and is still building his church today, people worship not in a place, but in spirit and in truth all over the world. Something that reaches much further, does much more than the temple that Solomon built. Let's read the words of that in Matthew chapter 16, shall we? And these are the very foundational words for the house or the building that Christ built, the church. Familiar words, I'm sure, as we read in Matthew 16 and verse 15. Jesus said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus here declares 
that he promised to continue to build his church. And it is built not upon a person, Peter, but upon himself and the truth of who he was. And it is very sad that this verse of Scripture, verses of Scripture here, have been so perverted over the centuries about what the church is and what it is today and where it come from and upon whom it was founded. The Bible says in another scripture that Jesus Christ again in the church is a foundation upon which cannot be improved, equaled, or exceeded. Built upon the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the founder of the church. When Christ chose the twelve apostles, they were the foundational material for that church. He commissioned them during his personal ministry. The church was in existence before Pentecost. And on Pentecost, Christ blessed the church with the endowment of the power of the Holy Spirit. So, again, the words here are very clear. We'll point them out. The word Peter, Simon Peter, Jesus called him Cephas, in the Aramaic language, all refers to a little rock. A rock that you could pick up in your hand and toss. It could be a pebble. It could be the size of a baseball. But it is something that is small. Peter was a small rock. When Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, in verse 18. He's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the truth that Peter uttered about himself. That is that this was Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah that had been prophesied and promised. It is that truth. That is the rock. Christ is the rock. And that truth of who he is is a rock that is of such size and magnitude it cannot be uttered. I'm not uttered moved in that regard. The word for Peter is Petros. The word for the rock that cannot be moved is Petra. In fact, there was an ancient city mentioned in the Old Testament the ruins are such today in a valley built up in rocks. Petra was the name of it. Huge mass of rock, not a little pebble. When Jesus said he will build his church, the tense of the verb there does not mean that he had not built it, but would build it at a future date, but rather it indicates he started it and he continues to build it. He's still doing that today. What does he mean by that? Churches continue to reproduce themselves. We use the term church in an abstract sense. Yet the church is like the home, the family, things like that. It's used in a generic sense in the abstract form as an institution. But to find it, you have to go to a local, visible assembly to see it. So the Lord has been building local, visible assemblies ever since He started the first church with the twelve apostles. 
We see that and how that comes about throughout the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us the story of that. Jesus himself before his ascension back to heaven said, you'll be witnesses of me here in Jerusalem. Expand that out in the region of Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world. And the Lord is still building his church today by building churches through evangelists, missionaries, and other churches. And we support some of those and always have. So, this is the comparative resemblance or similitude to the temple that Solomon built is that the Lord would build something that exceeded that, and indeed it has. I won't take the time, but I will want you to think about it as I mention it here, about the power and the perpetuity of the Lord's church since he established it. In the book of Acts, it said that those who were carrying out the commission of the Lord's church were going places and turning the world upside down. That's the power the Lord's church has had upon the earth since Christ established it. The temple that Solomon built didn't turn the world upside down. Nor did the worship at the temple of Solomon. I'm not diminishing any of that under the old economy and the Mosaic law and what they were to do. It was great, it was grand, it was what it was. But what the Lord has done in building His church and advancing His kingdom through the church far exceeds that. And we continue to see that and we'll continue to see it because the Lord will continue, as He said, to build His church. Another point or two uh, concerning this and that is that's certainly worthy of our notice. Solomon built the temple, remember, out of material that was prepared before him by David and the people. And likewise, you may have heard it said, if you haven't, I'll say it. If you have, I'll remind you, that Jesus built the church literally out of material that somebody else ahead of him had prepared. And that individual was none other than John the Baptist. Flip back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3 where we read about John the Baptist. He is called in the Old Testament prophecy and verified in the New Testament Gospels as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one who came before, went before. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Esaias, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, and notice this, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's John's role. In verse 5, it says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Down to verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Here we see, again, John the Baptist came preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom previous to Christ entering his personal ministry. He had disciples who believed These individuals were baptized. 
We cannot say truthfully to you whether they were all the twelve apostles were disciples of John the Baptist, but we do know some of them were because Scripture makes it abundantly clear of that. And I want to show you that. It was out of this spiritual material of the disciples that submitted to John's preaching and his baptism that Jesus took his disciples, named 12 of them apostles, sent them forth and established essentially the first church. You have everything necessary for a church in the 12 apostles and in Jesus sending them forth. Okay? A church is an ecclesia, a called out assembly of baptized believers covenanted together to carry out the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that just as clear as the noonday sun when you read it in Matthew chapter 10's gospel. However, let me show you and make the point that these individuals uh, that Jesus made the church out of were material that were prepared by John the Baptist. Let's go to Acts chapter 1 to begin with. And we'll show you here and then look at a scripture back in the Gospel of John. In the book of Acts chapter 1 at verse 20, the church is assembled previous to Pentecost, 120 members in Jerusalem, or 120 individuals we have there. And Peter is speaking, and he's speaking of Judas Iscariot as we begin our reading. Verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, notice this, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Now notice what Peter said there. He said, we come from this piece of cloth, and so we must choose another out of the same cloth in order to replace Judas Iscariot. And the cloth he's talking about is the material, the discipleship of John the Baptist. Verse 22, From the baptism of John, under the same day he was taken up Christ from us, must one be ordained. So there's the material. There's the pool of disciples from which Jesus took his disciples And of course, John was beheaded, so in a sense, all of John's disciples became Jesus' disciples if they were providentially able to. Some were scattered in other parts of the world, as we know from the book of Acts. But again, this is the material that was prepared before time from which Jesus would take his disciples, name 12 of them apostles, and establish his church, just exactly like David did with material that Solomon or that Solomon that Solomon did with the material that David prepared aforetime. Well let's pursue this thought just a little bit further, shall we? Let's go to the book of John's Gospel, chapter one, and see how this literally had acted itself out before the event there that we read about. In John's Gospel chapter one, Jesus is 
beginning his earthly ministry. And in verse 35, we read these words. It says, Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, this would be John the Baptist and two of John the Baptist's disciples who will be named in our reading. John, looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. So John gave us and gave everybody there positive identification of Jesus Christ as the Messiah based on verses I didn't read, what John witnessed when John baptized him, the Spirit of God coming down and God speaking. Verse 37, The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now, that's exactly what people are supposed to do. You don't follow the man, you follow Jesus. You know, you follow the pastor as the pastor follows Jesus. When they were disciples of John until Jesus came on the scene, and then they followed Jesus. That's, that's no offense to John the Baptist. That's the way it was intended. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone, as we just read to you a moment ago. Cephas being excuse me, the Aramaic version of Simon or Peter, and it is a stone, a small stone, okay? Uh, you know, when we, when we call it a stone, we're not talking about a rock, are we? I mean, a stone is a rock, but a stone is a little rock, not a big rock, as we said earlier. All right, so right there we see two disciples of John the Baptist becoming disciples of Jesus Christ becoming apostles. And it doesn't end there. Verse 43. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So they probably knew each other. All right? And again, disciples of John the Baptist, by all indications of what we read. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We kind of got a domino effect here going on, right? saith of him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And I'll pause reading there. It's an interesting story that goes on speaking about Nathaniel. But again, two more which uh, individuals here which seem to be material of John the Baptist, disciples of him, becoming disciples of Christ and apostles. Uh, Nathaniel here, uh, Philip, uh, both apostles of Jesus Christ, as were Andrew and Simon Peter. So, I hope you see that very clearly, the similitude of how uh, Solomon built the temple out of material that someone before him, his own father, had prepared. Likewise, Christ built his church, which far exceeds an earthly temple. Men still put emphasis on temples and embellish them and build them and make great spectacles of them. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a building. It is not something anybody builds with their hands. If men build it with their hands, there's nothing holy about it. 
except the people of God be there. That's the holy part, the holy element. This building, as we've often said, is a worthless structure, except that it is the designated place where the church of God meets. And the church of God is people, not structures. And it's sad that people can't see the difference in that. All right, the next point we want to make, and again, that was a very great point and a very important one. We hope you embrace it wholeheartedly. But the next point we want to make is Solomon's prayer that I'm going to call both a prayer of dedication as well as intercession. And we'll go back to 1 Kings chapter 8 for that. I'm not going to be doing a lot of preaching in the remainder of the time. I'm going to be doing a lot of reading. But the reading is necessary to make the point of the similitude. And again, the point, get this, is Solomon's prayer of both dedication and intercession. And of course, since I'm making this point, there is an obvious thing to compare it with in Christ. And that will be, and I want to say it now so you can just kind of think about it in your mind, the things that we read and maybe remember things you know of in Christ's prayer, his what we call intercessory prayer in John 17. Okay? And uh, so we're going to make that similitude our next point. But let's begin here in 1 Kings chapter 8, reading about the prayer. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible. I, all prayers in the Bible are beautiful, obviously. But some of them just, oh, they just, they're just wonderful. This is one of them. David prayed a prayer previous when he was assembling the stuff to build the temple. It's marvelous. Uh, this one that Solomon prays by way of dedication and intercession. And then for me, the one that Hannah prayed those are the top three in the Old Testament to me. And they're quite lengthy, some of them too. So they have a lot of substance, but my, just outstanding. It's a blessing just to read them. And so here is Solomon's prayer of dedication. Let's begin at 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 12. Solomon has built the temple. The ark has been brought into the temple. We're going to make a point on that after this point. But we begin our reading at verse 12 of 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, Then spake Solomon, The Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee an house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And again, I want you to just keep in the back of your mind, this is a prayer, as you will see, of dedication, but also intercession. It's going from dedication, transitioning into intercession, okay? And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel and all the congregation of Israel stood. So Solomon has quite an audience here on this occasion. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying. And just, I'm going to read this slow, just absorb it. Notice there the emphasis already is glorifying God. For what God promised, God decreed, 
God said he would do, and now God has done it. Okay? Since the day I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Solomon is speaking personified as if it's God's words here. And it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. We read that last week. And the Lord said unto David, my father, whereas it was in thine heart to build a house unto my name, thou didst well that was in thine heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son that shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spake, and I am risen up in the room of David, my father, and sat on the throne of Israel as the, day, Lord, as the Lord promised, and have built an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have set there a place for the ark wherein is the covenant of the Lord which he hath made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And let's just pause there. This is kind of an intro into the prayer. But Solomon's not taken off from then and there on that day about what he just did and what's going to happen from that day forward. He is going back and rehearsing that this has an origin before today. This has an origin before seven years ago when I started building it. This started way back. And so again, he's giving credit where credit is due. Not just to his father David, but to God. Okay? Have you ever wondered, for example, why so many times after the first five books of, of, of the Bible, first five books that Moses wrote, Throughout the Psalms, the prophets, and everywhere else, we keep reading about this same thing that we read about there in verse 16, about the day that I brought the people, Israel, children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. How many times do you think that's repeated in the Old Testament? God never let them forget it. They would have forgotten it. People tend to forget. And God is always taking them back to their beginning. Think about the references to Abraham. You know, I mean, God always takes them back from the beginning. Why does He do that? Because it takes man out of the picture. It takes Moses out of the picture. It takes everybody God providentially used out of the picture and puts the emphasis on God. God alone then stands in the spotlight. That's what I want you to get out of what I just read. Solomon just stepped out of the picture and in saying what he did about God's purpose, God's or David's desire, God saying no, David uh, preparing the material, he's putting the spotlight totally on God. He's glorifying God. Folks, we've said it before, we've studied prayer, I've preached to you on prayer and how to pray and the examples of prayer in the Bible. This is the way you start a prayer. You leave you out of it, you leave your supplications out of it, and you just address God as God. And you compliment God and you magnify God and you tell the truth about God like you need to do all that to get God's attention even though you don't. 
And then you proceed if there's anything else you want to say. That's the way you pray. So Solomon has decreased himself. He has laid his glory aside and put the emphasis on God. And even though Solomon did it, he's saying God did it. You know? It's not what I did. It's what God has done. Wonderful. Wonderful. What a preface to the prayer. Verse 22. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or in earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. He's continuing on. Who has kept with thy servant David my father that thou promised him. Thou spakest also with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. He's not patting himself on the back, is he? Solomon did it providentially, but God's the one who said he would do it, and he used David, the people, and Solomon to accomplish it. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that thou promisedest him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in thy sight to set on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father. God will, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built it. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant, and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. And hearken unto the supplication of thy servant. Several times already we're now hearken unto me. Hearken unto the supplication. Hear me. Okay, is what he's saying. And of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. So he's beginning to make the intercessory transition even now. Notice it in the next two verses. If any man trespass his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear and the oath come before thine altar in this house. Notice these words, they repeat themselves often. Then hear thou in heaven. That's intercession. Moses was an intercessor. David was an intercessor. Solomon is praying a prayer of intercession only to be exceeded by the intercessory prayer of Christ. Keep that in mind. Hear thou in heaven and do, and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy because they have sinned against thee, 
and shall turn again to thee and confess thy name and pray and make supplication unto thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven. And by the way, verse 33 is repentance. That's what that simply is. When they turn, they confess and they pray and they make supplication. That's all repentance. That's what repentance is. Then again, hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy people. And again, that's only time and place and way God ever, ever forgives sin is when sinners acknowledge it, confess it, pray, and ask for mercy and forgiveness. And bring them again into the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. Another scenario, verse 35, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel and thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon the land which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. I can't resist this. If you want to know about climate change, there it is. I've preached it before. If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locusts, or if there be caterpillar, if there any besiege, be, besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands toward this house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways whose heart thou knowest for thou even thou only knowest the hearts of all the children of men that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers now I want you to notice a different group of people he mentions in verse 41 and I point this out now because Christ mentioned other people in his intercessory prayers, we'll see. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, for they shall hear of thy name and of thy strong hand and of thy stretched out arm when he shall come and pray toward this house. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee and do thy people Israel, as do thy people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. Testimony of God's people. If thy people go out to battle against their enemy and whithersoever thou shalt send them and shalt pray unto the Lord toward the city which thou hast chosen and toward the house that I have built for thy name, then hear thou in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and be thou angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives into the land of the enemy far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whether they were carried captives, and repent, 
and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captive, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies which led them away captive, and pray unto thee toward their land which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause. Obviously the Babylonian captivity would be fulfilled by these words. Solomon is getting this from what he said to Mo- God said to Moses, that in the day that the people of God would depart from him, he would give them into the hand of their enemies. It hasn't happened yet, but it will be happening in the near future, and this is what Solomon is talking about based on what God said to Moses. Uh, see, where was I? Verse 50. And forgive thy people that have sinned against thee and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee and give them compassion before them who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they be thy people and thine inheritance which thou broughtest forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of iron that thine eyes may be open unto the supplication of thy servant and unto the supplication of thy people Israel to hearken unto them in all they call for unto thee. For thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance, as thou spakest by the hand of Moses thy servant when thou broughtest, out of, broughtest our fathers out of the land of Egypt Oh, Lord God. He just put the footnote to it right there that I was talking about. And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. When we started it, we only read that he had his hands spread up to heaven. It didn't tell us he was kneeling, but he was kneeling. It just didn't tell us then. It told us now, okay? And he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel. According to all that he promised, there hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us that he may incline our hearts unto him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and judgments which he commanded our fathers. And let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times as the matter shall require that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. How are they going to know that? Through them and that place of worship. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in His statutes and to keep His commandments as at this day. It's just an outstanding prayer of again both dedication and intercession that Solomon offers 
And I really don't know how any Bible student that has read much of the Bible can read that prayer and not think about Christ's prayer in John chapter 17. I mean, you can lay them side by side as far as substance and similarity, and it is just wonderful. We don't have time to read and comment on on John's uh, version of that, rather John's, what do I want to say, where John records that in the 17th chapter, but we'll do that next time. I would encourage you to reread what we've read this morning. Again, a marvelous way to pray, uh, a marvelous way to glorify God, a marvelous way for the king or anyone in leadership to intercede on behalf of the people. Many of the things he said there at the end is things that all of us as pastors try to do, to encourage God's people to worship properly, to be obedient unto God, and Reap the blessings thereof. Again, it's so beautiful, and yet Christ did it better. We'll read that next time, God willing.